Welcome to Evolution Revolution with Dulcinea. It is Thursday, June 11, 2009. Buddhism, like most logical processes, look to the core for the solutions. Only when we look within to our higher selves can we find true freedom without limitations and filled with possibilities and creative potential. Evolution Revolution is focused on offering the listeners intuitive and balanced information that fosters transformation both personally and globally, ultimately raising the consciousness on planet Earth. I am a metaphysician, clairvoyant and clairaudient intuitive, writer, public speaker, PR and marketer, personal advisor to visionaries, leader, and spiritual teacher. Please explore more on my website at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com or www.dulcinea'sdivinevision.com. Thank you for joining the show this evening, wherever you may be listening. Tonight on Evolution Revolution, I am honored to have an appearance from Stephen Asma, a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago, where he holds the title of Distinguished Scholar. In 2003, he was visiting professor at the Buddhist Institute in the Kingdom of Cambodia. While there, he taught Buddhist philosophy as part of their pilot graduate program in Buddhist studies and studied Theravada Buddhism throughout Southeast Asia. His book entitled The Gods Drink Whiskey, Stumbling Toward Enlightenment in the Land of the Tattered Buddha, chronicles his adventures in Asia. He also has studied Buddhism and lived in Shanghai, China. Asma is the author of several books, including Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads, The Culture and Evolution of Natural History Museums, Buddha for Beginners, and Why I Am a Buddhist. He has written many articles on a broad range of topics that bridge the humanities, religion, and sciences, including Against Transcendentalism in the book Monty Python and Philosophy, and Dinosaurs on the Ark, Natural History, and the New Creation Museum in the Chronicle of Higher Education. He has also written for the Chicago Tribune and Skeptic Magazine. Asma has been a featured lecturer at many institutions, including Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology and Chicago's Field Museum. He is a regularly invited guest to give Dharma talks at Buddhist temples. During the hour, Stephen will share his enlightened wisdom of the philosophical teachings or Dharma of Buddhism with his fun, illustrative, and captivating new book release, Buddha for Beginners. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining me on Evolution Revolution this evening. Thanks so much for having me on the program. It's an honor to have you here. So what is the unique element to the Buddhist religious scriptures that compelled you to write your recent book release, Buddha for Beginners? Um, Well, I I feel like uh, I've been interested in Buddhism since I was... uh, I, not when I was a little kid, but when I was in high school, and uh, I, I had been raised Catholic and sort of had discovered Buddhism through sort of the way a lot of people do, you know, like mostly through music. Uh, I was a Beatles fan, and then you get into Hinduism, and then, oh, what's Buddhism about? But then when I got into college, I started to study philosophy, and I discovered uh, that turns out Buddhism has a fairly rich and complex philosophical tradition. And so I was attracted to that and studied it formally. 
and then eventually getting my PhD. And part of my study was in Buddhist philosophy as well as um, other things like philosophy of science. So it turns out that um, unlike some of the other religions, the Buddha sort of gave philosophical arguments and, you know, went into some fairly interesting metaphysical territory that you oftentimes don't see, for example, in, you know, in, in the Christian New Testament, for example, you'll find these beautiful stories, but you don't find philosophical arguments. Whereas if you look at the Buddhist scriptures, you'll find Gautama, the historical Buddha, actually giving these rather complicated arguments. So that's what drew me. And I thought that, um, you know, Americans know, they know about Buddhist meditation, and they have sort of a general sense of the culture of Buddhism, but they don't, there isn't really much appreciation, I think, for these more philosophical ideas. So I thought, well, I'll write a book that's kind of accessible and, and even a little bit fun and humorous, but that will introduce people to these ideas. I think that is so profound. I think people, no matter what age, receive information when it's brought in a fun and lighthearted presentation. And I really appreciate that the, um, I would call it like a comic style, comic yeah. book style right, yeah. to the book. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was influenced a lot by comics when I was a kid. And um, now, actually, graphic novels have a little more um, respectability, it seems like, so, you know. Uh, being a, a trained philosopher, you have to be careful if you're making a comic book. But I think uh, people now understand that it's a pretty interesting medium and it can convey some fairly sophisticated stuff. For example, I, I studied museums a lot. Uh, this is when I put on my other hat. I do a lot of uh, study of science. And it turns out if you're trying to convey complicated scientific information, uh, museums will oftentimes approach it from a visual point of view, and you'll have dioramas and paintings. And, you know, this stuff really communicates ideas well to people and gets them where they're at and also gets them sort of emotionally. So I, I'm always attracted to that. And, you know, I have to tell you, being a former scientist and a visual photographic learner, I just completely agree. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> That's great. So that so it was really fun. Did you yourself? I know I must let our our um, audience know that you are not only a professor and an author, but you're a musician and an artist as well. You're a highly integrative being. <laughs> Thank you. Sure, and I much compliment to that. It definitely relates to the Buddhist philosophies that you present as just really um, being all that you are from the core of your truth. Well, and I did so, have a lot of fun drawing this thing. Yeah, that, that it took a lot longer than I expected, but that was really a labor of love was doing the drawings. And it really, it really comes across. The vibe comes across, and I, I'd like to let people know that not only are the illustrations fun and captivating, but some of them, I think there's a lot of accuracy and truth to them, and I appreciated them. Um, you know, <laughs> you, re you really take a, a unique approach in holding your, your philosophy of Buddhism, which I must ask, what specific philosophy of Buddhism did you base the premises of the book upon? Because I know there is some debate on um, in early B Buddhism versus more recent Buddhism, so I'm kind of right. trying to, to lead the audience into what perspective you present. Yeah, my my focus is on the earliest forms of Buddhism, which are sort of less well-known, I think, in the West. Theravada Buddhism is considered, it translates as the doctrine of the elders, and it's considered sort of the earliest form of Buddhism. It is the only surviving school of Hinayana Buddhism. 
So if you think about Buddhism historically, you know, it fractures into two major pathways, one of which is Hinayana, which is called the lesser pathway, uh, or the smaller path, and the other is Mahayana, which is the greater or larger pathway. And most Americans know about Buddhism in its Mahayana form. So, for example, Chinese Buddhism is Mahayana. Uh, Japanese Buddhism is Mahayana. Um, Korean Buddhism. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism is sort of an offshoot of Mahayana called Vajrayana, but it's also considered um, part of the larger path. Uh, Hinayana, most of the schools, the old Indian schools, died out, except the only one that survived was Theravada. And Theravada Buddhism still continues on in Southeast Asia. And I lived in Southeast Asia and have, have traveled all around that region and studied. And so you'll find lots of Theravada Buddhism, for example, in Sri Lanka, in uh, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, um, Thailand. Um, it's really the dominant form of Buddhism. And so the, the ideas ca are a little bit different in the different schools. Um, the early form Theravada tends to stress the historical Buddha, Gautama Siddhartha, who was born in 563 BC. And it looks at a body of scriptures that were, are basically written in a language called Pali, and it's very ancient, and um, sort of considers itself the original material, you know, as close to the historical Buddha as you can get. So my, the kind of Buddhism I'm explaining goes back to that material. Now, subsequent to that, some beautiful forms of Buddhism have evolved, but they've been, you know, it's hard to call them more recent because they're still, in some cases, they're still like a thousand years old. But Tibetan and Chinese Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism all sort of evolved in their own, in their own way, just like any religion when it gets to a new geographical region, it kind of evolves and transforms. And so most people know this later stuff. Now, I would say that the philosophical differences are complex. Um, Theravada Buddhism believes that um, there really, I'd say, sort of four major issues, um, one, one of which is the doctrine that all things are impermanent. Um, and pretty much all Buddhists believe that this is true. It's a metaphysical view of the world. The, the second doctrine is basically the idea that all things are interconnected. This is the doctrine of Paticca Samuppada. We think we're individual, sort of separated entities, but in fact we're completely woven together with other beings. Um, sort of like a, sort of like ecology. You know, you, you don't think about the organism alone. You think about it in terms of its ecological uh, community. And then the third doctrine would be the doctrine of no self, which is that there really is no soul and that this doctrine is something the Buddha is critiquing, and is not, he doesn't sort of approve of the idea of the soul. And then I would say, lastly, there's the ethical teachings of Buddhism. And all Buddhists agree in the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha discovered um, early on in his life, and then sort of was teaching the rest of his life. So I could go through those Four Noble Truths if you'd like. Oh, that'd be great. I think that this is a really good intro because the book is really aiming at people who are just awakening to the idea of something more, as you were and as I were and as many are on their path. So I think introducing the premise is a great idea. Good. The, uh, the Buddha grew up as a, sort of a wealthy, spoiled kid. Uh, his father 
was a, uh, a kind of a king. He came from the princely caste or class, and um, his father wanted him to be sort of a businessman, but, uh, and so he sheltered him and sort of didn't let him out of the palace too much. But eventually the Buddha got outside the walls of the palace and he saw this larger world. In the, this is, he sort of grew up in the Ganges Valley in northern India. And uh, what he discovered there was that there was a tremendous amount of uh, suffering in the world. People, you know, sickness, disease, just growing old and dying, the, the pains of uh, losing loved ones and all this. Um, he was shocked by this because he was unfamiliar with it. So he left this comfortable life uh, that his father had created for him, and he went on into the world, and he practiced uh, an extreme form of asceticism. So he he denied himself pleasures of the flesh. You know, he didn't eat much. He basically starved himself and just meditated and practiced yoga. Um, eventually, though, he, he found that this was not helpful either, and it was too extreme. So he decided on what's called now the middle way between the two extremes of, you know, opulent wealth on one hand and then sort of self-negation on the other. And he said one should always sort of take this path of moderation. And after he came to this uh, realization, he decided, I'm going to sit under this tree, the Bodhi tree, until I figure out how to solve the problem of suffering. And while he sat under there, he engaged in a form of meditation called sati or mindfulness. And in that state of awareness, he came to understand these four noble truths. First is just the realization that all life is suffering. So to have a body means you're open to uh, disease and you know any, anything from the common cold to you know the worst case scenarios. Um, but also just to be connected and uh, with family and so forth leaves us open to disappointment, uh, betrayal, um, the death of a loved one, this sort of thing. So the, the second noble truth, though, is he realizes that there's a cause to all this suffering, and the cause of all this suffering is our own craving, our own attachment to the world. And the third noble truth is that if we can eliminate this craving or attachment, then we can actually overcome the suffering. And the fourth noble truth is, is called the Eightfold Path, and this is just sort of the eight-step program by which you actually um, uh, eliminate your own or reduce your own craving and attachment. And so those, that's basically the, the central ethical teaching of Buddhism. Now, it's easy to say that. It's much harder to do it. Um, and the goal here is that you, you have to stop the ego from jumping in and sort of uh, pursuing your pleasures um, and your desires. And if you can stop the ego from pursuing desires in an obsessive manner, then you can attain freedom from um, the kinds of suffering that, that we all undergo. Very, very profound. I definitely can appreciate the two extremes. I think we all can where we live in one extreme or the other. Oh, yeah. And I, I think in terms of the philosophies of Buddhism, from what I've heard you say tonight, it, it seems as if some of the sects of Buddhism remained in one of those extremes, <laughs> or some yeah, of the extremes. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair to say, I think. Um, you, if you look at uh, what happened to Buddhism, it's sort of what happens to all, all spiritual traditions. Is you know There are some really good ideas, and then um, 
over time, they may turn into institutions, and then they turn into power hierarchies, and pretty soon you have all kinds of uh, corruptions of the original teachings. And I mean, this is true of, of really many of the spiritual traditions, and it happened in Buddhism too. Um, you got developments of really great new ideas, but also um, what I would call kind of corruptions of the Buddha's thinking. So like an example would be this. The Buddha argues that we should try not to think at all about the afterlife um, or the pursuit of immortality, because for him, he thinks this is a kind of, it's a kind of selfishness or a kind of self-absorption. Um, we're distracted uh, because we're thinking a lot about, well, how am I going to be reincarnated? Uh, or what's my next life going to be like? Or what's the afterlife going to be like? Is my soul going to be okay? And the Buddha says, you should stop all that. You may or may not go on after you died. We don't know. He brackets these, out, these questions out. He calls them unanswerable questions, or avyakata, which means una unanswerable. So he says, if you stop thinking about that, you'll actually start to think more about your own present moment in the world. And when you focus on the present moment, you begin to see what you can actually have some control over and, some, and attain some freedom from craving in the here and now. And also, this helps you maximize your compassion for others as well. So he said, let's, not, let's forget about the next life. Let's just simply put it aside and not, not get into it. But of course, it's an incredibly human temptation to think about what's going to happen to us after we die, and uh, am I going to be born into a good family, or am I going to go to heaven, or, or whatever. And sure enough, in Buddhism, there's a, you know, all of that stuff came right back in, in later years. If you look at how Buddhism evolved, you'll oftentimes find, for example, in Thailand now, I, I met many people who are very much concerned with, okay, how can we make enough good karma so that we'll be born into a better, you know, lifetime next time. And there's a lot of concern with that, whereas the historical Buddha thought this was kind of a mistake. And you see these kinds of changes and, and developments all through Buddhism. You know, I think that is such an interesting point, too, to note that just it's kind of like when we were children and we'd sit in a circle and you play that game telephone and, you know, the first person says one thing and by the 30th right. person, it's a completely different story, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very simple um, idea, but just showing how the distortion occurs. And in, there's a new recent movie out. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Religious with Bill Maher. Have you, are you familiar I've, with that movie? I've heard of it and I know, I know his work, but I haven't actually seen the film yet. You know, I, I actually had not heard of him, which was kind of a good thing, I think, when I went into the film, because it kept me as neutral as possible um, to what he presented. And he does a great job of illustrating that point we're just discussing in the film. I'm, I'm not necessarily condoning or not his perspectives in the film, but what he does do a great job of is really showing how the distortion occurs across the board, <laughs> Yeah, which really shows the... Um, to really find what's meaningful to each individual within. And again, in your book, Buddha for Beginners, you do a great job of showing the meaning from within and leading people back to the core, which is what I believe Buddha uh, represented. He, it's what he lived. It's not what he uh, wrote a book about. Right. That's correct. And I think that's powerful. I think that's the most empowering presentation that, that one can receive. Well, yeah, he... 
it's oftentimes true for uh, reformers like him that um, in many ways they're responding to religious institutions that have become overly ritualistic, um, like officious, and um, and in a way sort of hollow representations of spirituality. And what you find the Buddha doing is criticizing uh, the kind of Hinduism that he was raised on. And you, you have to realize that at the time, socially, the Brahmin caste, which is the top priestly caste of the caste system, was really in power. And what they said was sort of considered truth, and they controlled the spiritual texts, the Hindu Vedas. And um, the Buddha's generation and, and his um, sort of way of looking at the world was, well, look, let's forget about the caste system. Why should we think about the fact that you're born into this family that's Brahmin, therefore you're a Brahmin, and you're supposed to be better than me? When in fact, if we look at people, we can see that some people are very virtuous and they're from the lower class, and some people are really, you know, scumbags and they're from the they're from the upper class. So let's forget about the caste system and think about spirituality and virtue and uh, and ethics. And that was a pretty revolutionary thing to be saying at the time. So how many people worldwide has he influenced with that simple philosophy or with that initiating philosophy? Oh, uh, God, I don't know. I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but it's really, um, you know, it's one of the world's religions, one of the, the most influential uh, ideas in the East, and increasingly it's becoming influential in the West. I mean, ever since the in the West, I think it was sort of the beat generation and, and then the hippie generation that brought Buddhism more to the forefront. And now we have some, you know, some powerful, I think, uh, Buddhist figures, for example, the Dalai Lama. Almost everybody in America at least knows who he is, whereas my own parents' generation probably, I don't think they knew much about Buddhism at all. Um, but, in, of course, in, in Asia, Buddhism has been incredibly powerful and strong and counts in the billions of people, if you were to sort of think about, for example, include the Chinese, for example, sometimes the, the Chinese are not included in the numbers because, the, you know, in the 20th century, there was the attempt to wipe out Buddhism by the communists and so forth. But really, Buddhism is written pretty deeply in the character of, of uh, Asians in general. Um, and so that's, I think, uh, you know, I think if you look at the world population of religions, I think Buddhism is positioned very well to incorporate throughout the world because it, it tends to say, okay, you can be a Christian and still have some Buddhist ideas. You can be a Jew and still uh, embrace Buddhist ideas. It's not a kind of exclusive club in the way that some religions are. I think that is certainly true. I think it's a very universal uh, philosophy and idea, and I think it just resonates with the truth of who each of us are, which is to certainly look within for our answers. And if you, if we look at children, they demonstrate that so naturally. Yeah, that's true. It's a, it's a good way to simplify um, the universality of the ideas or the belief systems behind Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, kids are. Uh, you could argue that kids are sort of naturally Buddhist because they tend uh -huh. to. You know, they tend to live more in the present than we do. You know, we've had a lot of this sort of um, trained out of us, but kids are much more uh, in the present moment. And, um, you, you know, they're, 
they're also very willful and filled with desire. I mean, I, let's not be naive, about, but uh, the, but they do tend to to really feel comfortable uh, with themselves. And we tend to try to avoid the present moment. We we think our of ourselves mostly in the future. What are we going to do tonight? What are we going to do tomorrow? How am I going to get that job, that promotion? That you know, how am I going to work it out with my spouse? Wh- whatever. We're, we're very much sort of waiting to live as opposed to sort of um, settling down into the present moment and, and being more present in it. Uh, or we're regretting the past or revising the past. And I think we all have this tendency to sort of move either forward into the future or backward. And uh, getting in this present moment is oftentimes extremely difficult. And that's one of the things that Buddhism tries to do is remind us um, that, you know, both philosophically and also through these techniques of meditation, that um, if we just slow down a little bit, focus on the breathing and quiet the internal um, discursive mind, then we can actually, um, you know, discover some fairly important truths. And in that meditation experience, there are some important, there, well, at least there's one important symbolism of a lotus flower. What does that represent universally um, in Buddhism? Well, the lotus is, um, it's great. You see them all over, um, in, in really all over Asia, and they're oftentimes considered to be um, great offerings. So if you go to temple, for example, you can buy a lotus uh, sort of outside the temple and bring them in and, and lay them as offerings to either the Buddha statues or bodhisattvas or what have you. But if you look at the lotus in its natural condition, you find that it's a great uh, symbol of of a Buddhist vision uh, of the human being because it grows in this uh, basically a kind of swampy water um, it's quite muddy, bot- sort of soft mud bottom, and then the the root. So the root system is is set in that mud, but then the stalk comes up through the water, um, rises out of the water, and then the lotus basically blooms uh, above the water, and it's a beautiful flower. Um, and the Buddha said this is a symbol of of the human being who is rooted in in a body and in the physical world because we're all we're all animals after all, you know, we're, we all have pains and pleasures and disappointments and hopes and, uh, and all of that. And, and yet, uh, with, you know, the proper discipline of the mind, we can actually rise above this stuff, still attached, but rise above it and, um, basically then attain a kind of, uh, nirvana in the here and now. There's a lot of confusion about this idea of nirvana Nirvana is the Sanskrit word. The, the Pali term is Nibbana. And the Buddha talked about two different forms of Nirvana. Um, one is Nirvana uh, with the substrate, and the other is Nirvana without the substrate. What that means is that um, the Buddha and anyone like the Buddha who attains this kind of enlightenment is able to live here and now in the world with a body, um, maybe for many years, and, yet, and still feel pains and pleasures, but basically rise above them in terms of the attachments. In other words, okay, here comes a pain. This person insulted me. Um, well, okay, I see it overtaking me for a moment here, and there I'm going to let it go, 
and sort of exhale this insult and not hang on to it. Um, but, and also with pleasure is the same thing. Okay, here comes some really great meal um, uh, and it's delicious, but now I'm going to have to let go of it and, and I'm not going to sort of treat it like uh, obsessively. Um, this is a way in which you can, it's difficult to do this because we naturally want to obsess about uh, these kinds of experiences. But if we can do it, then we're like the lotus, which has sort of risen above the, the mud and opened up and attained freedom. The other form of nirvana, which is nirvana without a substrate, is the question about what happens when you die. And when the Buddha was, was actually dying, uh, his uh, best friend, Ananda, said to him, you know, what's going to happen to you now? And he said, well, I don't really know for sure. Um, but uh, it's possible that now I've been free from my desires and cravings, and now um, I'm going to be free of the substrate as well, that is to say the body and all experiences. Beyond that, uh, who can say? So wow. those are two interesting aspects, I think, about nirvana that people don't really appreciate, I think, and hopefully that comes through in the book. You know, it, it, that absolutely does, and that's actually another, that was my next question. So you, you just knocked them out two in one. I think that nirvana is such an overlooked concept. I think we hear a lot about karma and a lot about dharma, but as I read the book, I thought, wow, the new idea that I'm receiving here is nirvana. Yeah. And so I think that that absolutely was a, a, a very clear point in the book. And again, I think that's a point worth making because I think most of us, I think we know the band Nirvana from back in the 80s <laughs> or 90s. <laughs> Does that right. age me a little bit there? But that's okay. <laughs> but I definitely think when I was reading the book, I thought, wow, that's definitely a very important principle to rise above attachments because anyone who's a success story or not um, in their experience recognizes the importance of releasing the outcome to um, to a goal or a mission or an experience. It just makes for um, the ability to live in the moment and really embrace the opportunity and possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's oftentimes confused, I think, nirvana, and people have traditionally thought about it more like it's some kind of heaven or some kind of bliss that's after this life, when in fact, if you look at the Buddhist scriptures, you see Nirvana is actually a term that means to be cooled off, to cool off. And so it really just means can you cool off the sort of usual um, you know, conflagration of, uh, of, of desire and craving. And, uh, and if you can keep that, that coolness, um, you know, you've attained a, quite a bit of freedom from your own inner, inner, inner sort of drives. And I have to say when I lived in Asia, that's uh, very much um, a lived part of Buddhism. People always try, attempt to, in Thailand, for example, and in Cambodia, people will say, well, you, you have to keep a cool heart. And they look at us Westerners and they say, well, you know, Westerners, they really have a hot heart, which means like we're, we're too passionate, we're too wound up. Um, and it's very important in Asian culture to always keep your cool because that, you know, that, that gives good face and it also shows that you're in possession of yourself. And that's something that Buddhists really, um, you know, they really cherish that. I think that is a really profound um, experiential point. And I think that that is so true. If you, When you just said that in America we have like that hot heart, you can just see the fierce ego <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pushing people, you know, literally. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
We all have a problem, myself included. Uh, well, humbly, right? So Very broad. humbly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So while we're on clarification of just the true meaning of terms, what is dharma? Um, dharma is one of those terms that um, uh, that really had that comes out of an earlier Hindu tradition. And if you look at dharma in the Hindu tradition, it usually means the law or one's duty, one's sacred duty. And here you find it, it really means like you're born into a world and you have a place in that world. I was talking earlier, for example, about the caste system. So you're, you could be born in the highest caste or you could be born in the untouch, untouchable caste. But it, it basically you have a function in society. And your goal uh, as part of the spiritual path in Hinduism is to understand what your function is in society and to fulfill it as best as possible. So you'll see Dharma used in Hinduism in that way. It frequently just means the law or the sacred duty. And the the whole universe sort of depends on you fulfilling your role. So it has a cosmic significance as well. Buddhism takes that idea and then... um, modifies it and says, okay, the Dharma um, is a living thing um, and it is really the the teachings of the Buddha. So it actually, Buddhism sort of takes over that term and redefines it to mean uh, basically the Buddhist ideas, like the ones I was talking about earlier, the idea of impermanence, interconnection, uh, the doctrine um, uh, of no soul, and also the Four Noble Truths. So when you hear Buddhists talk about Dharma, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the actual teachings of the Buddha. And these are, most Buddhists, including the Buddha himself, Gautama, believe that the, that the Dharma is actually much more important than the man, uh, the, than the Buddha himself. He said, you know, look, I'm just a man. I discovered this stuff, but so can you. Try it. If you try it, you'll see that it works. Um, don't take my word for it. Um, you see this constantly in the scriptures. He's always downplaying his own role and trying to say that it's the Dharma that really matters. So that's the way that Buddhists use the term Dharma. I think that's important. And then one last important one to clarify is, of course, karma. <laughs> yeah, karma. Yeah, big one. <laughs> the big one, right? <laughs> yes, karma. Um, Run. Yeah, it made its way into American, you know, popular language. You know, everybody uses it. I think to for all kinds of things, and and you know, in Asia too, people will use it quite loosely. Um, it's it's specific, like its technical meaning is uh, karma is sort of actually accurately translated as action, and when you act well then you get the fruits of karma, which are the consequences of your actions. So that's technically how the Buddha uses the language. But basically, if you think about it in terms of the, um, the metaphysics that the Buddha grew up on, you'll see you know, that there's this wheel of becoming or samsara in which we are all trying to, um, well, trying to perfect ourselves as best we can, you know, to what extent we can. And as we do that, uh, Hinduism says, well, then we will be reborn into a better, a better life. Now, I said uh, earlier that the Buddha critiques this idea, and he doesn't think that there's a soul that goes from one life to the next. But nonetheless, um, karma came into the East, sort of Indian philosophy in this way, and the Buddha basically took it and said, all right, 
let's keep this notion and let's think about it more in terms of um, this life. Uh, if you act badly in this life, you will suffer bad consequences. But it's not sort of a really mystical or metaphysical idea. It can be understood in terms of a kind of ethical um, or even psychological theory. So, for example, if I have a tendency to, you know, indulge a little too much when I go out drinking, um, and if I don't nip that in the bud and try to work on that on a regular basis, then I'm going to develop sort of character traits. You know, what happens is uh, habits build up and build up and build up. And before you know it, I'm actually now enslaved by a kind of obsession, an addiction, let's say. In this case, let's say it's to alcohol, but, you know, fill in the blank. There's lots of other stuff. And now my earlier decisions, when I had some free choices and could have carefully, you know, disciplined myself, are now, those decisions are now punishing me in later life because now I'm suffering with an addiction. And so in a way, karma can be thought of in this much more naturalistic way that, um, and sort of working on yourself, you know, today will actually help free you, you know, next week and next month and next year. So in a way, you have to think about it almost like a psychological theory in Buddhism, um, developing healthy attitudes and habits will actually lead to increased freedom, you know, as you continue to sort of evolve psychologically and move through these different phases of your life. So in that way, karma can be, you know, something quite, quite, um, well, commonsensical in a way. I think that is so accurate, and I think it really leads, um, it, again, these explanations are so clear and so simple, but it really leads back to the point of present moment awareness and just really being empowered in the present moment to create your world the way you desire it. And if you create a world that you desire in this moment, then it will lead to a, a desirable experience in the next moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, and it's also, a, you know, his message is, is one of, um, it's a tough love message because um, <laughs> what he says is you, you're, you're going, you can't just indulge, you know, what, what just happens to feel good now. You've got to actually discipline yourself. So in that sense, it's, um, you know, that's why there's all the meditation and there's all the reminding of ourselves of the impermanence of all things. And so in that sense, you... You want to live in the present moment, but you also want to have a really focused mind and one that doesn't um, just sort of answer to, to the feelings you're having in, you know, right now. There's a great analogy he gives. He says, um, he goes, imagine that your, you know, um, your different senses and your feelings and your desires are like um, these six different animals. Um, for Buddhism, the, there's really not five senses, but six senses, you know, so there's the, you know, hearing and taste and touch and all that, but also the mind is considered one of the senses. So he says, okay, imagine these are all different animals. Um, you've got like a snake, you've got a bird, you've got a monkey. Um, and he says, now imagine they're all tied together on, you know, they're all just basically, you know, they got a collar on and they've got some kind of chain connecting them uh -huh. all. And he says, um, on any given day, they're all going to sort of be trying to get to their own natural um, habitat. You know, the monkey's going to be trying to climb a tree. The snake is trying to slither away. The, the, you know, the crocodile's trying to get to the water. And whichever one on that day happens to be strongest is the one that's going to win. 
And he says, that's what life is like for us without mindfulness, because whatever passion or desire is strongest in us on, on this day is going to drag us in that direction. But then he says, okay, now imagine with Buddhism, what I'm giving you is a stake. And the stake is something you can basically take this rope that they're all tied on and you stake it to the ground. And he says, now all the animals will continue to push and pull in their directions. But after a while, you know, it may take a while, but after a while, they will, they will realize they're not going anywhere. And they will slowly sit down where they're at and relax. And he says, that's the kind of um, focus and peace that mindfulness can bring to the senses. And so it's a nice, it's a nice metaphor for thinking about, you know, attaining this kind of equanimity of, of mind. I think that is such a, a nice analogy. And, you know, I must share, like, in my experience, I was a scientist and I've evolved very, uh, very or, or orderly. And after I had left, I, I had left graduate school up north at, um, in Palo Alto, I decided to take some, I was so visual, I decided to take some psychic classes. And then I'd moved back down to San Diego. I was done with that, but I had experienced that little, I dipped in and dipped out. And I came back down to San Diego, and I was here a couple years ago, and I walked into a restaurant, and all of a sudden I was seeing this clairvoyantly seeing, like not actual physically seeing, but I was getting images that were very clear um, of a little character flying around me in circles. And I looked over to my friend, and there was a statue of what I was seeing, happened to be a statue right next to me, and I go, who is that? I'm not sure who that is. And she goes, she looked at me and she goes, are you joking? And I said, no, I have no idea. I was raised Catholic, Christian, so I know all the statues in the Catholic Church. <laughs> but I had never seen this figure in, in my life. And it was Buddha. It was oh. the big, chubby, happy Buddha. Mm. And he was with his legs crossed. And, he was just, and I thought, she goes, oh, that is so amazing. So the next day I was seeing this little figure and I thought, this is such an experience. It's just completely mind-boggling but very enlightening. And then I'm seeing the lotus flower. So as I read the book, it took me back into my own experience, which very much paralleled many of the things that Buddha presented in his philosophies, that the answers lie within, that the enlightenment that I receive from setting myself free allows me to come into the present moment. Mm, mm, Interesting. Yeah. is very empowering. So for me, in, in my experience reading Buddha for Beginners, although I don't necessarily consider myself a Buddhist, many of the experiences that he communicates have been a part of my self-awareness process. Mm, it was yeah, very validating. Are, that's interesting. There are a lot of people who I think um, find, when they look at Buddhism, they find a similar experience that they've had... Um, They've had sort of feelings and attitudes and even sort of theories like this without perhaps having a name for it. And then Buddhism comes along and they're like, oh, yeah, that, I, I was thinking <laughs> something along uh-huh. these lines. So it, I think it resonates with a lot of people. And that's why I think it has a, um, I think Buddhism has a really a good future in terms of, how, you know, in globalization. You know, it's interesting to look at the world religions and how they're, how they're faring, and I think Buddhism will do well for those reasons. It's a simple philosophy in a way, um, but it's also um, quite quite profound and a little bit counterintuitive in places, you know. So it's challenging and exciting, but also something you can apply. 
And you know, I must add, I think it challenges people to stop look, looking extrinsically for solutions, right. and it leads them to the intrinsic ultimate solution, which resonates with the universal essence of who we are as humans. Yeah, there's a, there's even you know there's uh, in the West there are schools of thought like this, but they're also well not well known. Like Stoicism, for example, is a, Ro- a Roman philosophy, and if you see the way the Sto- Stoics talk. Um, it's very similar to the way Buddhism talks about changing your own internal psychology rather than trying to rearrange the external world so that it suits your purposes because that's a, that's a pipe dream. That's never going to work. You, you just don't have that much. Nobody has that much power. Um, but you do have power over your own mind if you train it. And the Buddha, and uh, as I said, Stoicism, for example, also agrees that that's the thing to do is to cultivate um, better mental tendencies, and, uh, and that's a path to freedom. We are speaking with author Stephen Asma. His latest book, Buddha for Beginners, you can find him on the web at www.stephenasma.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-A-S-M-A.com. And of course, you can link up to that to Stephen from the EvolutionRevolutionRadio.com link as well. So I must ask, so as we had initiated the hour with the idea that um, music and Buddhism had synergized for you, and I noticed on your fantastic website that you do offer some musical talent. Would you like to share? Um, yeah, I do. I love, I've been a music musician longer than I've been a Buddhist, although they're sort of about the same time frame. And uh, yeah, I I play have played many forms of music, mostly improvisational, like blues and jazz. And I played in the blues scene in Chicago here for for many years. And now I'm playing this sort of um, 1930s nostalgic jazz, uh, like Django Reinhardt stuff. And uh, yeah, I I love music, and I think there's a correlation between uh, sort of learning an instrument and um, falling in love with music, and also developing you know, these philosophical and spiritual dimensions of ourselves as well. Yeah, that is so nicely put. I must add, last Thursday I had Barbara Hanklau on the show. Are you familiar with who she is? I've heard of her, but I haven't read her stuff. Okay, she has a book um, actually out of Hampton Roads Publishing, which you also are with, Hampton right. Roads Publishing. So <laughs> that's great yeah. to know. Um, she wrote a book called Alchemy of Nine Dimensions. And in in her book, she actually outlines like the third dimension would be the physical form of Earth, and then the fourth dimension through the ninth are uh, spiritual, non-physical dimensions. And she went through those, and when she went through them, she mentioned that the seventh dimension is sound. Hmm. And I found that to be profound. This was, again, just a few days ago, but I found this to be a profound awareness for myself. So when you just mentioned that um, the spiritual awareness and the multi-dimensional search and or the multi-dimensionality of music synergize. It really made sense to me that we look for something above ourselves, and when we do that, music is a gateway to that information. So I thought that was profound that you had mentioned that in the hour, and then of course she gave me kind of the the mechanisms of the non-physicality of music. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I don't know much about the many dimensions. Uh, it's definitely out of my area, but I definitely know that uh, when you play music and you get in that moment, you can have a tr- sort of a transcendent experience where you do get out of yourself. And um, what what exactly 
is happening at that point is unclear to me, but I, you know, I have many more years to work it out. And, and who needs to put words on it anyways, just for fun understanding and to validate that, that there is something more that can occur when you synergize with uh, that, that innate idea of creation, whether it's art or music or poetry or even articulating the book with the, the pictures and the words uh, to create the outcome Buddha for beginners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's important. So, um, so what else do you have coming up for this year? I saw there's another book. Yeah, I have actually, it's going to be a good year for me. I have two books coming out. Um, one is coming out in October, and that book is called On Monsters. And it's actually a, it's a, a history of um, the kind of creatures and stuff that scared us in the West from the ancient world up through the medieval up into the scientific world and all the way up to the present. So it's kind of fun. Um, it's kind of scholarly. And then I have an, a much sort of lighter book that uh, I'm also excited about. It's a little more personal, and it's about why I am, why I sort of became a Buddhist and why I think Buddhism is something that, um, that many, many people could benefit from. And that's called, uh, unsurprisingly, Why I Am a Buddhist. And that's coming uh-huh. out of Hamp- Hampton Roads in, I think, January, so I'm very excited about that one as well. I look forward to both of those. Please keep us in the loop um, at Evolution Revolution, and, and we'd love to have you back to, to talk about those as well. Great. would love to come back, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Very, it's a very exciting experience when we can um, synergize the academic and the spiritual and the philosophical and really break the barriers of this is one category and that's another. And I think that you depict that very uh, well on your website and in uh, the resonation of who you are. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. The common phrase that beauty lies in the eye of the beholder is a simple parallel to the depths of Buddhism, which leads one to delve within to seek solutions to the complexities for this worldly experience. The responsibility exists for each and every human to manage ourselves in a most powerful way from the inside out, which can then lead to deep, profound solutions that have the potential to transform and cultivate a most endearing human existence. Embrace the journey within and allow the awareness of the truth of who you are to radiate and nourish the core of your divine being. Next week on June 18th, we will have Scott Bloom who offers an enchanting parable that reveals a deep and powerful message of personal transformation, awareness, forgiveness, and a plethora of multifaceted healing possibilities in his new book release, Waiting for Autumn. Scott is the co-founder of the well-known inspirational website, Daily Om. On June 25th, Matt Zoe will offer his fun, witty, and enlightened approach to experiencing a rich spiritual life full of joy, laughter, and cheer with his book, The Rascal's Guide to Enlightenment, How to Become Enlightened on a Budget. On July 9th, Dr. Stephen Farmer will be returning to share his latest deck of oracle cards, messages from your animal spirit guides. Please be sure to join us as Stephen offers his divine awareness and inspiration to connect with the animal spirit guides in your life through this fascinating deck of cards. On July 16th, Sharon Jeffers will lead us into a mystical love and destiny divination system in her book release that is filled with research and unique offerings based on the familiar deck of 52 playing cards. Love and Destiny, Discover the Secret Language of Relationships, offers information on the character and nature 
of relationships and invaluable insight that every person should be empowered with. On July 23rd, Margie Worrell will be offering her transformational life philosophy in her book release, Find Your Courage, 12 Acts for Becoming Fearless at Work and in Life. On July 30th, Michael Tamora, a most divine spiritual teacher of our time, with his masterful awareness and consciousness in his book release, You Are the Answer. On August 6th, Teddy Bart, a longtime radio personality and broadcaster, will offer his latest novel, A A Particle of God, which is the culmination of the universe he has explored and been a part of both broadcasting and spirituality in the form of a cleverly crafted parable. On August 13th, Dr. Denise Badeau will offer her expertise to assist in engaging parents in their children's dream world in her valuable book release, Dream Guider, Open the Door to Your Child's Dreams. On August 27th, Dr. David Bercelli will be offering his integrative insight into stress, anxiety, and trauma and how they can create the opportunity to manifest a more fulfilling and meaningful life in his book, The Revolutionary Trauma Release Process, Transcend Your Toughest Times. On September 3rd, Pamela Brooks will offer her well-rounded book, Choose Power, Tools and Techniques for a Home and Work where she gathers power principles from a variety of traditions and then clearly explains and applies them to everyday life. Step-by-step exercises are included that can be practiced today and then used tomorrow for a most optimal outcome. On September 10th, Peggy McCall will be returning. And on September 17th, Jeff Brown will be back with his new book, Soul Shaping, A Journey to Self-Creation. On October 15th, Noah Benche will be making his appearance And on November 12th, Barbara Hancloud will be back on Evolution Revolution. You can purchase all of the author's books featured on Evolution Revolution at www.amazon.com or link up to their individual websites through the Evolution Revolution homepage at www.evolutionrevolutionradio.com. Please join me in the upcoming weeks on the revolutionary independent production of Evolution Revolution for some exciting guests and uplifting inspiration, which can be further explored under the upcoming guest section on the home page. Additionally, please explore the Evolution Revolution archive shows with inspirational authors that can be found on the Evolution Revolution homepage and the radio archives tabs within the website and, of course, All episodes are available for free in the iTunes store by searching Dulcinea. The archive shows are available 24 hours a day to listen to and include amazing talent such as Barbara Hanclough, Neil Donald Walsh, Stephen Lewis, Dr. Eric Pearl, Barbara Marks Hubbard, Arielle Ford, Peggy McCall, Richard Lawrence, Debbie Jordan, Gary Zukoff and Linda Francis, Charles Virtue, David Robert Ord, and more. Please share Evolution Revolution with others who may desire to join us in the future for an enlightening experience. I am a metaphysical teacher, healer, and spiritual counselor who offers clairvoyant readings and teleclasses via phone, allowing me to connect with people anywhere. Please visit my website under the Services and Events page, which includes client testimonials and a wealth of information. A divine and spiritually enlightening experience awaits you. Also, please be sure to explore the new audio feature called Voices of Change. You can find it within the website under the Voices of Change tab. 
and it offers a unique expression of divine talent and wisdom that has the potential to expand, enlighten, and catalyze universal consciousness into the ever-present, abundant, infinite, and limitless realms. Be sure to explore the exciting audio features that are ready for listening to include Dreaming Bear, Amber Hinton, Janine Kimmel, Joylena Goodings, Marla Martinson, Thomas Nair, Suzanne Northrop, and more. Co-create with Evolution Revolution. We are seeking partners to help Evolution Revolution evolve and expand to even more people across the globe. If you are interested in partnering and supporting the rapid development of Evolution Revolution, please explore the Evolution Revolution tab. I look forward to hearing from you about the infinite possibilities to co-create in the highest light and with the grandest intention. Thank you for joining Evolution Revolution this evening with my honored guest, Stephen Asma. Thank you, Stephen, for your time and expertise tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It is great fun, and I must, must say there's something that keeps popping up for me. I see a children's book in the future for you very clearly, <laughs> and it has to do with these Buddhist principles and your great ability to uh, create art. <laughs> oh, that'd be great, yeah. Yeah, so definitely open up to that idea if it resonates with you. <laughs> okay, Thanks. So much fun. It's a creative universe, and it's so exciting, the possibilities. So thanks for your amazing book, Buddha for Beginners, and we'll look forward to hearing from you later in the year. Great. Much gratitude to you for listening and supporting the revolutionary independent production of Evolution Revolution Radio. I wish each of you an abundance of heavenly love, including peace, joy, and gratitude today and always. Abundant miracles. Good night. <laughs>